0: This morning we spoke with Governor David Ige about the status of things in our prisons and jailhouses. The Hawaii Supreme Court justices are considering whether uh, they should force the Corrections Department to begin releasing more inmates due to the overcrowding and the surge of Delta cases. The vaccination rates for most state workers is high. As of July it was close to 90 percent, but workers at Public Safety had the lowest rate of any other department. Here's the governor.
1: We have made public safety and the correctional facilities a priority from very, very early on during this pandemic. We do know that uh, those who live in those congregate facilities uh, are at risk, especially because they're confined. And we have uh, too many people in those facilities. So it is improving. You know, I've uh, spoken with Director Max Sultani, and he is working very hard to encourage all of the inmates as well as the staff people to to get vaccinated as you know we did mandate vaccinations but employees can choose to get tested on a weekly basis uh, we do believe that the percentage of those vaccinated will continue to increase as we proceed through this pandemic
0: well we have had that uh, situation where you know now the question of the uh, release of certain inmates, you know, is now before the uh, Supreme Court again. And there's just concern about uh, the number of cases, COVID cases and COVID deaths.
1: Yeah, certainly that's been a concern of ours as well. As uh, as you know, again, um, prisoners were often uh, offered to get vaccinated uh, early as a priority. Um, Many chose not to. You know, we continue to um, work with the Oversight Commission to look at what improvements we can make. It is a challenge. We have many who are assigned to the correctional facilities and we don't have the space or the capacity to fully implement the COVID protocols. You know, we like to isolate anyone new into the system for 10 days, but oftentimes we just don't have the space to be able to do that.
0: And I'm sure there are people out there who are just of the mind that, you know what, just mandate it require them and not allow for the testing option. What do you say to that?
1: Well, I mean, I do think that we're making progress and and we have gotten a significant percentage of those vaccinated. So I do think that we continue to consider that and uh, working with the attorney general to make appropriate actions and take the appropriate actions. So the cases we have been successful in keeping COVID out of many of our facilities for a, a very good long period of time. But um, as the case counts in the community and community spread increase, you know, it's it's virtually impossible to keep uh, COVID out of the um, prison.
0: And I'm not sure what the vacancy rate is for the uh, adult correction officers. Uh, I know there is a concern that you don't want officers to quit if we need those workers on the job. But do you see at some point saying everybody's got to get the vaccine, period?
1: We are looking at that as a requirement, and we have been working to fill vacancies in the correctional facilities. Um, We have had many increase the number of training sessions and opportunities that we're having, and so we are committed to uh, filling those vacancies. We pay well. We uh, promote the opportunities uh, to be in the correction profession. And, um, you know, we have had better success in people signing up for the, the training courses and getting more correctional officers. And so we'll continue to do that.
0: We've heard lots of criticism. You know, you took the step of uh, asking visitors and or actually telling them that now is not the time to come to Hawaii because the uh, Delta surge was stressing our healthcare system. Uh, Do you think you're being unfairly criticized about that? You know, there was a downturn shortly after that, Uh, although, you know, I think August, September is normally when we see a slowdown.
1: I definitely was aware that uh, there would be a natural slowdown. Certainly, I was concerned and heard the concern from our community that um, there were uh, too many uh, visitors here on the island. Uh, And Catherine, as, as you may recall, you know, the spike started before the 4th of July weekend, but uh, it really started accelerating. And, you know, we crossed the 100 and then the 200 and the 300 average. And then right prior to Labor Day, when I made the announcement asking visitors uh, to not come, uh, we were averaging 900 uh, new cases. We had more than 470 COVID-positive patients in our hospitals, and the ICU units all across the state were above capacity in some facilities and and clearly near capacity in virtually every facility across the state. So I did feel that even though our visitors represent just a small image of the cases, that um, anything would uh, be able to tip. Uh, numbers to the point that the healthcare system would crash.
0: Well, we did hear the criticism from the uh, hoteliers that they wish that you had consulted with them before you made that statement. Um, I happened to be uh, uh, riding the elevator the other day and shared it with a cab driver and uh, asked how he was doing. And he said, oh, business is terrible. He said he worked nine hours and only made $30. And he said, I'm mad at Governor David Ige.
1: Well, I do know that, um, you know, it had an impact on our economy and our community. But I really felt that um, we needed to make sure that we don't crash our healthcare system. You know, even though I authorized um, crisis standards of cares um, in order to protect um, our healthcare workers and the system, uh, we have not had to implement that. We have not had to make life and death decisions about who receives care and who doesn't. And I do believe that if we had not taken that action, uh, we would have hit the healthcare system and really crossed that threshold um, that would have severe impact for everyone, um, not just COVID patients, you know, everyone who needed healthcare during that time. So no regrets. I understand it's my job to make some of those decisions. And I, I felt that it was necessary at that time.
0: And is there anything else that you want to talk about, anything you want to emphasize?
1: Well, again, I just want to encourage uh, if people are not vaccinated uh, to get vaccinated. You know, that's the most important thing we can do so that we can end restrictions and really get back to the new normal. As you know, the Pfizer has submitted um, an application for emergency use authorization for vaccinations for children. Age 5 to 11. I really do think that is an important part of what we're trying to do to fight COVID 19. We do expect that. The federal government, the FDA, and the CDC will be reviewing that application in the next two to four weeks. And we do expect it to be approved. And that really will be a game changer. You know, it'll help us to continue to keep our schools open. I do know that many parents have asked about uh, vaccinating their children. You know, it really would make an important part of our community. And, you know, we always understand that our children are our most impressed um most precious assets that we want to protect that we would now have the
0: option of um,
1: vaccinating them and that will make a huge difference in getting back to normal
0: and you know there have been some mixed messages um throughout this pandemic and and some of them coming from your lieutenant governor you know and uh some folks are, are just wondering you know is he a part of your team because sometimes uh, he has made statements that say, may seem to undermine, you know, what you've just announced.
1: Well, I mean, you know, we try to um, make him aware of the things that um, we're working on. And, uh, you know, he does have a mind of his own, and he, um, he makes the statements mm-hmm. that he does. You know, we continue to be focused on taking the best action on behalf of the entire community, Uh, And I do appreciate, you know, we um, continue to be the most successful state, I believe, in in dealing with this pandemic. I know that this uh, Delta surge has really been a setback, but the last uh, three weeks have been important trends in the right direction. We are seeing uh, fewer infections, and we are um, getting to a better place for, for our hospitals and healthcare.
0: Yes, thank heavens uh, for that. Although uh, yeah, September, oh my gosh, the death count for September is just so disheartening.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and um, you know, the death count is a lagging indicator, so we do know that we will see higher death for the next uh, several weeks. Really, uh, because of that surge oh. that we saw. So, in, so the the, the, worst
0: I mean, so, the worst is not over yet. I mean,
1: the worst is not over yet.
0: That was Governor David Ege talking to us this morning, cautioning that we could still see the death rate from COVID-19, the Delta variant climb over the next few weeks. He continues to urge people to get vaccinated.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Seven ways to save water at BoardOfWaterSupply.com.
0: This is The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, it has been a week since Kaiser Permanente set up a special clinic to provide monoclonal antibody treatments for COVID patients to prevent hospitalizations. The Maui Lani Clinic was set up as the high case counts in the ICU at Maui Medical Center were soaring and stressing our healthcare workers. So far, 16 people have taken advantage of the treatments. The Maui Lani Center has the ability to treat eight patients a day. We talked to Errol Buntuyan about the process. Regeneron is given to patients early on in the disease when the initial systems of symptoms are mild or moderate in order to prevent the need for critical care the doses provided by fema are administered through a series of shots what healthcare officials often refer to as subcutaneously or subq
3: when a person gets exposed to to COVID, um, development of symptoms can happen between three to five days. Usually when the person is exposed with COVID, they get tested or they get aware that they've been exposed because they've heard someone. They get tested. If it's positive, then that's when uh, someone should consider getting monoclonal antibody. If they are at the high risk group or if they develop mild symptoms or start to have like, uh, loss of smell, loss of taste, maybe they think they're coming down with a cold, they know they're positive, and they've got risk factors, that it's pr- probably a really good idea to consider getting the monoclonal antibody treatment.
0: And the uh, clinic that you've set up, is that the only place on Maui that it's available?
3: No, actually, um, Minute Medical has some capacity, and that's the only other one that I know that's doing it. The rest of the community is referring through MHS into us. This treatment has been around since the beginning of COVID. And as you know, even former President Trump got it as a treatment when he was positive. He was one of the first famous folks to get it. But it's been around for that long. Only now has there been a bigger push for it as we've seen the variant come through our community, Uh, certainly because we've had such low vaccination rates and, you know, we're still just finally hit 60% 60% completed vaccine so it's been going through our community so i think the the interest has has been peaked to try to get the information out that this is an available treatment plan.
0: And i know when we talked with Hilton Ratho from the healthcare association he had said that you know they had put in a big ask for you know so many doses of uh, Regeneron but we ha- we've only gotten maybe half of what we've asked for. What's the situation on, on Maui as far as the supply i mean are there like dates as to when the stuff expires?
3: No, there, there aren't any expire dates that we know that we need to, to utilize them by, um, but we do know that we have adequate supply uh, of it on island right now. The demand hasn't been as high as we had expected or, or, or wanted for now. I think we're trying to get the, the word out, and hopefully more people will be interested in receiving the treatment, but we have definitely adequate supply right now.
0: So, do you need to get you know your doctor to sign off on this before you you know show up at that clinic? How does that all work?
3: So, there are a, a number of ways. One is having a doctor call. We have a phone number that they can call. Call center. I can share that number with you. Um, it's eight zero eight six hundred two seven eight five. So that's a general number that's also posted on the Maui Health System's website. So people can call that number, doctors can call, patients can call also, and they can self-refer themselves and we'll set an appointment. We'll have a provider call them back and do what we call a verbal consent and give them all the information about the monoclonal antibody treatment with side effects and... And what to expect with the process of getting the injections.
0: What can you share, you know, about the side effects if, if folks are just, you know, hesitant about, you know, these different treatments?
3: So the main thing that we are looking out for is pretty much the same as what we looked out when we get a vaccine, when we give the vaccine, which is anaphylaxis, itching, swelling, you know, those, those kinds of things that we look for. So Typical allergic reactions is basically the main thing that we look for and so far, we, we haven't really had very many allergic reactions. It's pretty much the same profile as the ones that we get for the vaccines but, but yeah, that's what we, we kind of monitor for. Um, if someone does have an allergic reaction, then we do have a protocol also for anaphylaxis to, to help treat that reaction.
0: And then walk us through. So if somebody shows up at the facility, what's involved? How long uh, can they expect to stay? How long is the treatment?
3: It's a series of four injections, one in each arm and one in each leg. And we monitor after the injection, we monitor a patient for an hour just to make sure that there isn't any development of any anaphylaxis or allergic reaction. And then after that hour, then, we discharge them.
0: Okay. But is there another treatment which involves an IV?
3: There used to be. We started our center here, IV, like early September. But then now with FEMA, we've transitioned to sub-Q. The FEMA team of nurses is EMTs and FEMA doctor that are on site, they're only authorized to do the injections.
0: Is the uh, is the shot then just a more effective way to get it into your system versus the IV, which you used to do? So
3: it's definitely more convenient in the sense that, that it can be given to a large amount of people without having to start an IV. They can just do a shot. You know, So I think that's the convenience aspect of it. In terms of effectiveness, I don't think the data is solid on what's better or not because of the need that FEMA had decided they can service more people by their ability to do the subcutaneous. You
0: know, this month of September, we've had so many deaths yes. due to COVID. And, you know, the whole point of this is to prevent people from having that severe reaction so the sooner that they can either get some other uh, type of treatment to avoid ending ending up in the icu you know the better
3: correct and getting the monoclonal antibody is basically the jump start to your own immune system making the antibodies because it takes a while for your own system to make it so that's how come the earlier the better that you get this jump start boost of the antibodies already uh, at the earlier onset like usually right when you get diagnosed or right when you know you're positive go seek monoclonal antibody as a treatment option to help stop the prevention of the symptoms from developing in that time frame we've had some really good stories where people right after the treatment they felt better they felt less sick they felt less whatever feverish or they felt less tired less symptoms we had one patient that got their taste and smell back after the treatment um so that was a really cool case that happened
0: earlier this month for the for the folks that say who might have come down with covid earlier and then maybe got a shot, but maybe there was another breakthrough. I mean, is there any kind of protocol as to who gets this type of treatment? What can you tell our listeners about that?
3: High-risk and eligible. Who's high-risk and eligible for Regeneron? People with a body mass index greater than 25. And if you're age 12 to 17, anyone with a body mass index greater than the 85th percentile. So it's essentially, if you're obese, you're eligible. Pregnancy is an eligibility, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, anyone age 65 or older, anyone with cardiovascular disease or hypertension. So there's a lot of qualifiers for this, obviously. So it doesn't matter if you've had natural immunity, a prior infection, or if you've been vaccinated, but if you are in this risk group and you got infected and you are developing symptoms, you're at risk for going to the hospital, right? So you wanna try to get it before you are sick enough to be admitted or ending up in the ER.
0: That was Dr. Errol Bentuyan talking about the new antibody clinic that Kaiser just opened up at Maui Lani Center in the past week. The clinic is available Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., though that may expand depending on the demand.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now. Open September 16th, org.
0: Joining us for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter, Christina Jedra. She has an update on the status of the short-term rental bill that the Oahu Planning Commission was debating. Hi, Christina.
4: Hi, Catherine.
0: So, yeah, this is uh, this meeting yesterday. I mean, there were a couple of days where they just had just extended testimony from the public. (laughs)
4: Yes, many hours uh, of testimony in prior meetings. Uh, Yesterday, though, was the decision-making day, and so they basically kicked the ball over to the city council's court. So we should expect uh, several public hearings with the city council, and the planning commission also recommended that more community outreach be done, so uh, we might see some discussion at the neighborhood board meeting uh, level as well. So this bill, uh, it didn't pass unanimously? No, it was six to one. Uh, One commissioner that that voted against just said that he wanted to see more community outreach that, you know, he was um, on the commission two years ago when this issue was debated um, last and, you know, that. Conversation went on for many months, um, kind of tweaking the bill. There were two competing bills at that time, and so many meetings. And so this um, recent iteration has only been going on a couple months. He said, "You know, it really needs to be vetted and, and talked about more." Um, but ultimately, that will now happen at the the council.
0: So this bill, I mean, the the big change was that it was going to um, allow rentals to be booked, uh, short term rentals, uh, not. 30 days but 180 days so they would stretch out that period and then it would also right. kind of uh, expand uh, some of the resort areas you know I think in Waikiki, Ko'olima, Ko'olina and Makaha uh, but the, the commission did something different yesterday.
4: Right They're, they kind of just recommended um, that th- to support the residential piece that they don't want um, rentals um, in residential areas, they're kind of leaving the resort question up to the council, um, and really the decision making is up to the council anyway. Um, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot of different parts to this. Um, the the most notable perhaps is that 30 day to 180 day change, and really what that means is that um, you know right now people can rent uh, a short term rental for. For a month, and can stay there for for less than that for two weeks, for example. Um, this new proposal would make them sign on for six months, um, and DPP has said there would be exceptions to that, um, perhaps like traveling healthcare workers, but um, the details are still being worked on, and exactly how they would enforce that also is not yet clear.
0: Yes, and um, you
4: know my understanding is that the the whole point of this
0: uh, extension of the day so was that it would target. Um, the neighborhoods, you know, where there are lots of vacation, illegal vacation rentals, uh, and that's just been a, you know, a source of criticism uh, here on Oahu. Uh,
4: right. When the mayor rolled this out, um, he said just that, you know, that during the pandemic, um, the short-term rentals were basically shut down along with much of the rest of the economy. And he said, we really want to keep it that way. He said straight out, I want to put these rentals out of business. Um, So this certainly um, does kick up a notch, the the restrictions from two years ago. um, And uh, I think we're going to have some contentious community conversations going on. Yeah. You know, uh, I know the the mayor did
0: say that uh, his plan in advancing this bill uh, through the Planning Commission uh, and the Council was that it would uh, it was kind of going in tandem with the proposal to raise the hotel room tax, uh, and so it'll be interesting to see you know what this action by the Planning Commission does exactly uh, to that to that strategy.
4: Right. And under the proposal, um, some transient vacation rentals would be taxed as hotels. Um, So that would bring in some revenue that ultimately the city hopes would help with uh, the enforcement piece, which um, was not in place two years ago. Yeah. uh, Well, I I know lots of
0: uh, uh, associations in the Waikiki area and and other areas were wondering how this was going to play out. So we'll we'll just have to watch to see what happens. But thanks so much, uh, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was Christina Jedra with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat with the latest on the vacation rental bill. Now, headed to the City, Honolulu City Council for further review.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Dental Service with guidelines for a healthy smile, including brushing twice a day, flossing daily, and seeing a dentist twice a year, helping people live well and smile more. HDS.
0: This month, Food & Wine magazine named its uh, 2021 Top 10 New Chefs in the U.S., and making that list is Kaimuki native Gabby Maeda. She's a graduate of the uh, California Culinary Academy and is the chef de cuisine at State Bird Provisions in San Francisco. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Maeda to talk about getting a start in the industry at the young age of 14 and where her favorite places are to eat whenever she comes home.
5: I think a lot of people imagine that many chefs kind of follow a similar path. They show an interest in cooking when they're young, they go to culinary school, they get the degree, they get hired at a restaurant, they work their way up the ladder. But from mm-hmm. what I've read, your origin story is a little different, starting with convincing your parents when you were 14 to let you homeschool yourself. What's that story?
6: I was going through a moment in my my teenage years mm-hmm. and jumping from a couple of different schools. I went to La Pietra for a couple of years and then I went to Kalani. And, you know, I did one year of high school, like traditional high school. And I just, I thought that I was maybe wasting everyone's time. I was not, I was very interested in like what I was learning, but just like the thought of waking up super early and going to school. And I just felt like I was not using my time wisely. And I think when I proposed to my parents about the Myron B. Thompson Academy, at first, they were just like, you are so lazy. You don't want to go to school. You don't want to do this. But I was like, no, I like I have a specific goal. And these are the small milestones I'm going to hit every week. And I made a PowerPoint presentation to my dad of like why it's a good idea. And he was very, very hesitant. But then eventually was like, okay, well, you just need to make sure you have good grades. And I basically got a job at Sakia's simultaneously to prove that I could multitask and prioritize my studies while still trying to gain experience in the restaurant business. So I did that for a couple of years working at uh, one year, working at Sakia's. And then I transitioned into working at Hiroshi's in the kitchen for like two, three days a week for the first couple of months. And then gradually going to like four days, sometimes five while still doing my homework and still like getting everything done, hopefully in the early part of the week, so that the latter part of the week I can work and not really have to like freak out about what assignment I have due to, I ended up taking like a couple classes at KCC, which is really nice. That really helped my senior year. My senior year was super light, which was really fun. I just worked more. So it was great.
5: It takes a special kind of person to, you know, very disciplined person to be able yeah. to, to do that.
6: Yeah. You really have to like be self-motivated too. Yeah. And yeah. I really, I think that translates a lot to the kitchen. It's easy to just like get by and just do the bare minimum, but you really have to push for more. That's not easy, you know, like it's easy to just do what you have to do, punch in, punch out, do your homework that you have to do, but not, you know, just get by. And I, I'm not okay with complacency like that.
5: But you started cooking at State Bird Provisions in San Francisco when you were 24, but there had to have been a point after completing high school where you realized your path was about to come to a crossroads. You could stay here, continue to climb within Hawaii's culinary industry or you could see what you could accomplish elsewhere. How did you come to that decision to make that leap to go to the mainland?
6: I made the decision pretty young. I was like 16 when I was like, I'm going to move to either San Francisco, New York, or LA. And I chose SF because it's just close to home. I like the weather a lot too. It's like always air conditioned weather. It's always 60 something degrees. And it's just, it's great. So when I was at Hiroshi's, I made the choice to go to culinary school and apply for the Culinary Arts Program at CCA. It was scary, but it was like a really great time for me to like really put myself out there, learn how to be on my own. You know, it was just it was just me, and I had a couple of roommates, and it just kind of kept my path just kind of kept changing and evolving. I did my externship at Restaurant Garidenko. and that is a restaurant by Ghirardelli Square. It is definitely an institution in San Francisco. It's been around since like 1999. And it's a very intense kitchen and I loved it. Like I just enjoyed the standards. I enjoyed the systems. I enjoyed the respect that you gained as a cook throughout your time. I enjoyed all of the things that had to do with that type of restaurant. And it was all about discipline, all about, again, self-motivation, all about making the right choice. And that for sure, like instilled the best habits in me. So I spent five years in that kitchen and I, I just loved it.
5: As the next generation rises to the decision-making levels across various industries, we're seeing some significant changes to how the workplace is structured, how it functions. What kind of changes are you seeing?
6: I think there's a lot of changes right now, especially with the pandemic. The first one being, well, let's, let's take a step back before the pandemic. I feel like state bird was already part of a movement for kitchen culture. It was definitely the most respectful workplace environment I worked in. When I first started in 2014, it was like a very big change from my previous jobs in a sense of like, just the way that kind of people talk to each other or honestly, the way that like Chef Stewart communicated with me, even when it was maybe not the best message. He made it just in a way where it was so respectful and like you had nothing but respect back, you know, and you weren't afraid to cook. He led through that. He led through respect and not fear. And I think that that started kind of my own change. And when I started rising the ranks from cook to saussier to sous chef, and then eventually to chef de cuisine, I felt it was part of my job and part of my duty to like continue that kind of way of leadership. So it, you really saw it when people would come in from restaurants that were a little more intense. and like just different and they come here and they, they're treated very differently. And then you realize that they, they stay longer, you know, they're not here for a year. They're there for three to five years and then they go through their own path and then they follow suit, you know, and then they leave. And then they kind of carry that with them and try to lead their own teams with that kind of sense of respect, which is just fantastic. And now like looking back at it, a lot more places are starting to lead that way. It's not a yelling kitchen. And most restaurants aren't like that anymore either. There still has to be a sense of like, you know, nervous energy, which is really good, but it doesn't have to be crippling. That's number one. Number two is equity and pay. Our cooks get a really nice kind of tip structure that they share with front of the house too. So the wages are really livable, very comfortable actually for even an entry level cook. You can make a very comfortable living. And especially for San Francisco, which is already so expensive in Hawaii as well, you know, cooks shouldn't be paid so little that they can barely pay their rent. Cause that's, I I was there living paycheck to paycheck. And like one of them could maybe cover my rent. And then I had to like, figure out how to figure out the other half, but it's definitely like moving towards the right direction. And also the work-life balance is a big part of it too. I think that's something that 15, 10 years ago, like that was definitely not the case. It's definitely nice to see a change. Those are like a lot of Little things and little changes that are going to really benefit the kitchen for years to come.
5: You're in your 30s now. Where do you see your path taking you? What do you hope the future holds for you?
6: I mean, I would definitely eventually like to own my own place. I think that I have been playing that like slow game. You know, I'm in no rush to open it by any means. I think it takes a lot of it takes a lot of everything. And right now, it's like the best time in my life to figure out who I am as a chef and not just like food wise, but like leadership too, how to manage the crazy things that could happen with like a grease trap or a bath or a light or you know what I mean? Like it, it's not to me, I, I don't think it's the right time either just with the staffing shortages and it's already hard enough for established restaurants to find people, let alone like new ones, you know? Yeah. And it's just really diluting the talent pool tremendously. Like we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a lot of different applications and, you know, we're taking chances on people that don't have experience, but training them and it's almost better, you know, it's like you can train them the way that you want them to be and they become just extraordinary cooks. And I still like enjoy having Chef Stewart as my sounding board, as well as Chef Nicole and Elizabeth, who are the three partners of State Bird. I have such a special relationship with each and every one of them. I can go to them for certain things. And like, it's so nice to have that sense of mentorship too. And if I opened up my own business, I wouldn't really have that on a everyday basis too. You know, I still feel like I'm pretty young and, you know, all the people that I really admired in my career, like in my past, they didn't open up their own thing until they were like almost in their forties. And I think that's a good move because you can still build your following or, you know, your resume or just kind of your lifelong like, team members, you know. And I don't know. Life is really, like, unexpected sometimes. You don't know where you're going to land.
5: What's your favorite place to eat whenever you come home?
6: Ooh. Oh, man. Does it have to be one?
5: What about a couple? What are, what are some of your Okay. Favorite?
6: Well, every time I go home, I always want to go to Angela Pietro's. Because I've been going there since I was like three and I get the same pasta every time and it still tastes the same. My grandmother used to work at Ona Hawaiian Foods. She was a waitress there for like 30 something years. I know it's closed now, but that was that was a spot that I had to go to. And other than that, oh, my God, I just hit up all the, the usual things. Like I go to Foodland and I get poke. Yeah, I go yeah. to Rainbow Drive and I get a plate lunch. I go to 7-Eleven and I get a spam musubi. It's like, it hasn't really changed, but more for restaurants that are current now, Pig and the Lady. I worked with Andrew at Hiroshi's. I love Pig and the Lady and I love anything from Ed Kenny. I like the kind of key restaurants, you know, that's where I grew up.
5: Thanks so much for talking story with me, Gabby. Appreciate your time.
6: Yeah, thank
0: you. That was Chef Gabby Maeda talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Maeda was recently named one of Food & Wine Magazine's top new chefs in the U.S., And that's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow we hear about the warnings issued by Kauai authorities about fentanyl cases that are on the rise there.